From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. From a capital insurrection to multiple mass shootings, recent violence is prompting an old debate. Does the U.S. need a domestic terrorism law? And if not, how do we quell this violence? Our guest today, Hina Shamsi, the director of the National Security Project at the ACLU, says we don't need to look far to see how existing laws that claim to target domestic terrorism in reality grant the government unprecedented power to surveil and to criminalize communities of color. These laws have been weaponized to harm some of the same communities that are suffering disproportionately from violence in America. She joins us today to break down this debate. Hina, welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to be with you, Molly. Thank you. You know, on social media, in the press, in Congress, people seem to be making a link between recent acts of violence and domestic terrorism. And I know that the ACLU has historically been very wary of how the term domestic terrorism is used, particularly when it becomes a way to expand law enforcement's power. And I'm wondering if you can explain what the ACLU's wariness is about. Post 9-11, Congress passed in the Patriot Act a definition of domestic terrorism that is really very, very broad. And it is vague. And this definition of domestic terrorism essentially covers acts that are dangerous to life and that violate laws and are, quote, appear to be intended to. So when you think about appear to be intended to in the eyes of whom, well, the definition goes on to talk about intimidation or coercion of civilian population, influencing the policy of government, affecting the conduct of government through violence. And when I'm laying these out, the sort of elements of this definition, I hope you see how these terms are really, really broad. And in the post 9-11 era, federal law enforcement agencies have for years used this definition and claimed extremely expansive authorities to investigate not just domestic terrorism, but also international terrorism. And our concerns arise from the fact that this is vast authority, which has been deployed disproportionately, wrongly and unfairly against Muslims, brown and black people, communities of color and also immigrants. Are there examples that you can give us to give a sense of how this broad definition encompasses so many groups who may not agree with the government, for example? Yeah. So the definition itself, like a lot of definitions in law, is really just broad, right? It doesn't actually specify groups we agree with or groups we disagree with. People we may like, people we may not like. The definition has to be applied. You have, over the last 20 years, investigations of environmental activists as potentially engaging in acts of violence that might intimidate or coerce a civilian population or influence the policy of government. You see, I hope, how broad this is. 
Other examples over the last years have included civil rights activists, people who are seeking racial justice. The Trump administration used this definition and domestic terrorism authorities through a variety of different law enforcement agencies and information sharing mechanisms to surveil people protesting family separation, to claim that Antifa was domestic terrorists when they blamed Antifa for the summer of racial justice protests. Attorney General Barr claimed domestic terrorism authorities after the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Again, that summer of, you know, inspiring protest, a reawakening for racial justice and that bigotry-based xenophobic administration under Trump sought to use these authorities to target people who were seeking change. And this has happened over and over again. And, you know, just one thing I'm hearing is that it really seems to give broad discretion to law enforcement agents themselves. And this seems like a worrying phenomenon because you don't know who is in that position of power. I mean, we know from the Capitol attacks on January 6th that some of the participants in those attacks were members of law enforcement. So I'm curious if that's also sort of a consideration in how we look at these expanded law enforcement powers. It is a consideration. I would go a little bit deeper than that. In that January 6th, you get to a horrifying event, the insurrectionist mob attacking the Capitol. And we hear policymakers and pundits seeking to expand domestic terrorism authorities, apply the label and provide agencies with even more power. And that's a problem. It's a problem because The issue is not that law enforcement agencies do not have the authority to investigate white supremacist violence. And I want to be very specific because too often the government isn't specific, right? Law enforcement agencies aren't specific. What we're talking about here is white supremacist violence, bad conduct, and Law enforcement agencies already have all of the tools they need to address white supremacist violence effectively. What they don't need and what they shouldn't get is what some politicians and policymakers rush to want to give them, which is even more power and resources to criminalize acts that are already criminalized using the domestic terrorism label. And that's part of the problem. I want to come back to the structural racism point, because one snag in all of this, for me at least, is that classifying, for example, what happened January 6th at the Capitol as domestic terrorism seems like a way to mark that event as part of a systemic issue, a symptom of the rise of white supremacist violence in this country, and not just a random or spontaneous occurrence. But is it possible to name and address white supremacy and get accountability without invoking domestic terrorism? 
Yeah. And I understand that because white supremacist violence is a systemic event going back to the founding of the country. But you should also, I think we should also recognize that when we talk about domestic terrorism, we're talking both in plain language and rhetoric and also legal authorities and frameworks. And there is a deeply problematic way in which the terrorism discourse happens in this country. Over and over again, too often, it has been applied to Muslims in the post 9-11 era, right? That is the same kind of discourse that has harmed people. And it has done so through legal authorities and frameworks that define terrorism vaguely and broadly. And in some sense, that's also a little bit understandable. And let me explain why. Terrorism is, in essence, political violence. And so when we try and capture the politics of violence, it turns out we're not very good at it. There's a reason that there is not, for example, an internationally accepted definition of terrorism. Because if you think about it from the international perspective, countries are very political about what they call terrorism and what they don't. And for me, that was actually a formative thing growing up. I grew up outside of the U.S. I came here for college and much of my political and social justice awakening came because I grew up in Southern Africa during the period of apartheid and seeing the horrific injustices, what it meant to be banned and what it meant growing up for me was the South African apartheid regime calling the African National Congress and freedom fighters terrorists. And so I grew up very suspicious of state labels and state power being used in those abusive ways to censor people asking for, crying for, dying for equality and came to this country for an education and all of those other good things and ended up staying here. And then 9-11 happens and this is now part of my work is to really interrogate, challenge, and prevent abuses of state power in the name of addressing terrorism and counterterrorism. And I know that's sort of a probably long-winded way of saying this, but there are deeply problematic racialized ways in which in this country, given our history of who we see as threat, who we look at through a securitized lens, how domestic terrorism is used in law and in discourse. And that's why I'm very wary of it. And that in part because so much of my work and the work of my team, so many people at the ACLU, is to challenge those abuses of power, to overhaul these authorities, limit them, prevent them from being used for improper purposes to violate people's First Amendment rights of speech and association and freedom of belief and freedom of religion. And 
I don't think the answer to white supremacist violence can be ignore all of the bad things and apply this label to another group that we find understandably abhorrent and not address the ways in which this is a really problematic framework. Hannah, you had said earlier that law enforcement already has all the tools that they need to hold the people who perpetrated these attacks accountable. And I'm wondering, is the issue really that we just need, as a government, to apply those rules equitably? I mean, is the problem not expanding the rules, but making sure that they're being used not as weapons of discrimination and targeting communities of color, but being used to also address white supremacy, which I think some people think that they haven't been used equitably, that white supremacists get more of a pass than, say, communities of color? Oh, such a good and rich question. The way I think about this, and I realize I risk centralizing it or putting it perhaps too simply, but just as we cannot at the international level kill our way to peace and security, at the domestic level, we can't prosecute our way out of racism. And there is an important role for the criminal legal system to address the acts of white supremacist violence, including the ones that we saw coming out of January 6th. But we can't think that that is the system that is going to address the deeper problem of white supremacist beliefs, because how that plays out is also voter suppression and racism that is harming people in public health. You know, thinking about access to all sorts of social goods So what I want to say to you here is that too often in response to events that cause us anger and grief and fear, and I'm not immune from any of those things, too often the response is to jump to and expand the criminal tools, apply more criminal tools, when truly The issue with white supremacist violence isn't that law enforcement doesn't have the tools. They haven't had the will. I feel like also so much of how we define accountability is through the criminal legal system. And I think what I'm hearing is that accountability and deep evolution on structural racism cannot happen within a system that is so rife with its own problems of structural racism and punishment. Are there ways that we can educate ourselves about how we think about these things that will in some tiny way chip away at some of the issues that we brought up? There is the broader work that the criminal legal system can't do and shouldn't be doing on its own, which is the work of addressing racism in society. And that is work that I think many people are already doing and more people need to be doing, right? And that occurs through education, self-education. I'm not being a genius here to say that that is hard work and necessary work. And it is generational work because we've been dealing with it in our country since its inception. And there are reformist, overhaulist, anti-racist approaches that 
are necessary and we can't rely on law enforcement alone or primarily to address the things that are deeply systemic. It sounds like listening is also a part of what someone who is everyday like me can do, like listening to the communities who are targeted or impacted by law enforcement disproportionately communities of color. Because, I mean, it feels like many of those grassroots organizations have been doing this work and have ideas about solutions that will be harm reducing rather than harm expanding. Absolutely. Communities of color, grassroots movements, BLM, like there's just there are leaders who are thinking about and considering how to move forward on these issues and awareness of the harms that are done when we invoke labels that invite a counterterrorism response from the government and counterterrorism responses from the government are infused and have long been infused with bias-based approaches. And what communities of color have been asking for and were supporting and pressing for is for Congress to really interrogate and ask for accountability from law enforcement about why they haven't focused on the violence, the white supremacist violence, what is stopping them using the legitimate tools that they have and provide data. It may be shocking, but we don't have data And we've been asking for it, communities of color have been asking for it, on how the FBI actually investigates white supremacist violence, the number of cases they have, how that compares to cases they have involving other groups, right? Right. How they classify it, I imagine, is also really helpful. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is really important is don't rush to action by giving law enforcement more power without asking and interrogating what law enforcement has been doing and what is actually needed. Fact-based solutions seems like not too much to ask, but turns out can be quite challenging. Well, it's hard. It takes more work and it takes more time. Exactly. We've alluded to the fact that Congress has suggested certain domestic terrorism expansions. Can you give a brief overview just so listeners can sort of monitor and keep track of what you're watching out for? What bills have been suggested? Where are they in Congress? I think the thing that we would watch out for most is law turning the definition of domestic terrorism that I talked about in the Patriot Act into a crime. That's unnecessary and it would be harmful. It would entrench the approaches and systems that have harmed communities of color, and it would raise really significant First Amendment concerns. We've been talking like 16, 20 years about the First Amendment harms to communities of color as a result of domestic terrorism definition in the Patriot Act. It would become so much worse if there was a domestic terrorism crime, which is unnecessary because there are enough related crimes that they could use. Another thing that I'm looking at is expansion of abusive post 9-11 approaches like watchlisting, social media surveillance. We have for years now, been criticizing and calling out and filing, you know, lawsuits and representing people subjected to the no-fly list. 
And I just read something that they're thinking about expanding the no-fly list to be represented under the domestic terrorism rubric so that more people could be affected by the no-fly list. And also, just for people who may not be as familiar, can you explain what the no-fly list is? Sure. So the no-fly list is part of a watchlisting system that was put in place starting in 2003. And what it does is that it is based on vague and very loose criteria. And using it, the government has acted to ban people from flying to, from, within, or over U.S. airspace. Essentially, it acts as an indefinite, potentially lifetime ban on the ability to fly domestically or internationally. And often people don't know that they're on that list, so don't have a way to come off of it because the government won't even tell them that they are officially on it, even though they suspect they are because they cannot fly. That is exactly right. And for years, we litigated to challenge that. And as a result of our litigation, now the government tells you if you are a citizen or resident of the United States if you are on the no-fly list, once you've been barred from flying, often by being humiliated at the airport when you show up and you are told that you can't fly because you're on a government list. And the government then confirms it, but it provides virtually no meaningful due process after that in order for people to challenge wrongful placement on the no-fly list and clear their names. So people can be on the no-fly list, ask the government for information. We hear over and over again that it doesn't actually provide reasons or justification. It won't provide evidence for imposing this lifetime ban. And people don't get a hearing before a live and neutral decision maker. And these are the fundamentals of due process, right? Notice, reasons, evidence, hearing. Fundamentals. You don't get it if you're on the no-fly list. And so what we want is an overhaul. The people who will most be hurt by this are communities of color. One point I just want to end with is I've been working with you, and I know you've been working on this much longer, but from an Obama administration to a Trump administration and now to a Biden administration. And one point that I think is really important in all this, and obviously right before that was the Bush administration and the post-11 Patriot Act that you referenced earlier, One thing that seems really important, especially for our listeners, is that it does not matter who is in office. And I think it's part of the general notice that this does not go away. These problems are things that we need to address no matter who is in the executive. And honestly, whoever, no matter who's in power at the time, is that something that you agree with? I feel like that's a pitfall that people could fall into. Like we get relaxed when it seems like someone who isn't as anti-civil rights is in office. It absolutely happens. And it is absolutely a pattern because in this area, when we're talking about national security, which is what my team and I focus on, there is really unfortunate consistency across political parties and administrations. The example I want to give is the Oklahoma City bombing committed by Timothy McVeigh back in 1995, that point deadliest attack on U.S. soil. And instead of addressing what that specifically was, it became part of a signature 
Bill Clinton effort that resulted in something called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. Effective Death Penalty Act gives me the chills still. And President Clinton boasted that this was a mighty blow against terrorism. But you know what? It actually ended up really harming communities of color. And we're still struggling with consequences of that act today in the criminal legal system context, in the immigration context. It made non-citizens who'd lived legally in the U.S. for years suddenly subject to automatic deportation. And it enacted terrorism-related provisions that ballooned post-9-11 and grew with new infrastructure That was a salutary lesson that we need to learn over and over again, that that Democratic president, in order to show tough on terror, enacted that. And if I made just a footnote of interest, just to show also the consistency over years, is that if I'm not mistaken, Merrick Garland, our current attorney general, was on the ground in Oklahoma City and part of the prosecution for that case. So there is a real lineage that keeps getting carried on decade to decade. There is a real lineage. And now one of the things we're watching for is to ensure that Merrick Garland as attorney general does not support new domestic terrorism legislation that is unnecessary. But the second thing I wanted to tell you about, and this was something that I, so many of us worked so hard on this, real advocacy efforts with the Obama administration, with a Black president and a Black attorney general saying, you need to pass guidance on race in the Justice Department, because the Justice Department has guidance on race that prohibits bias-based profiling to any degree. It's wrong. It's unconstitutional. It's ineffective. Let us tell you all of the ways. And we worked so hard on that. Grassroots, our stops, like just groups for and over again. But the FBI prevailed. And so during the Obama administration, 2014, the Justice Department under Attorney General Holder issued bias guidance on race that laudably expanded the categories of individuals and protected characteristics against whom bias could not take place. They added gender, they added a bunch of that. All sounds great. They had a carve-out, a carve-out for national security and the border. That carve-out also gets adopted in similar ways by the Department of Homeland Security. So now what you have is guidance on race that was put in place during the Obama administration that essentially is read to permit bias-based profiling in the national security and border, read immigration, read border entry contexts. So I've been talking to you about a number of things and working together, the definition on domestic terrorism, the ability to use bias-based profiling because Justice Department and Homeland Security guidance allows for it in the national security context and vast and overexpansive investigative authorities, plus tools like watchlist systems and the no-fly list. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about domestic terrorism frameworks that must not be expanded 
must be overhauled and are unnecessary to expand in order to deal with the real scourge of white supremacist violence. Well, Hina, thank you so much for explaining all of this and giving us that rich context. It is so helpful because I think in many ways we see these articles, we think, I mean, sometimes even I think, oh, something's being done. And it's so important to be mindful of what is being done, in whose name, how. So thank you for always keeping us mindful and aware. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for letting me explain all of these things and why our concerns are what they are. Thank you, Hina. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We so appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.